Okay, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. And today we will have our attention on verses 23 to 29. Psalm 37, we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow, to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will injure their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken." or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do ask that you would grant to us, Lord, faith to believe every word of God. Lord, everything that you are teaching us here concerning the outcome of the righteous and the wicked. Lord, may we have the faith to see and apprehend these things. Lord, to comprehend them, Lord, by the Spirit, so that we will not live for this present world, but rather that we might set our sight on the world to come. Lord, on a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and that we might be content with what you give to us in this life, and Lord, press on to the kingdom of God. So Lord, may we see and understand that only you can establish the steps of a man. Lord, only you can keep us from falling headlong to our own ruin and destruction. So Lord, may we put all of our hope in you, Lord, trusting in nothing that comes from our flesh or from our own strength, Lord, but only in those things that proceed from you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, last time we saw from this psalm that it is better to be poor and righteous than to be rich and wicked, even if the riches we possess are the abundance of many wicked persons. Right? The poor, simple Christian 
who has a meager life is more to be envied and is more to be preferred over the wicked rich man who has access to all the comforts and all the pleasures of this life. And this is because of the day of judgment, the day of judgment and the life to come. This is the key to living the Christian life. We must, by faith, fix our eyes upon the future, right? Upon those things that we have not yet seen with our eyes, but we must see them by faith in the word of God. There is a day of judgment coming where all will stand before the Lord and they will be judged in righteousness. There is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That will be the reward of all of those who believe in Christ. There is a heaven for the righteous and there is a hell that awaits for the wicked. And this is why the poor Christian is better than the rich sinner. For the poor Christian has a future, a future of peace, of prosperity, of joy and comfort, right? An eternity with God in a new heavens and new earth. And when that Christian enters into his eternal rest, all the hardships, all the sufferings and afflictions that he experienced in this life will be as nothing to him. And this is why the wicked rich are never to be envied, for the wicked rich have a future as well, a future of torment, a future of suffering and anguish and sorrow for all eternity, suffering the torments of eternal fires of hell. And when the wicked man enters into that eternal torment, all of his comforts, all of his pleasures, all of his riches, his experiences in this life, that they will be as nothing to him compared to the anguish he suffers for all eternity. And the clearest example of this is the rich man and Lazarus. This is the perfect example of what the prophet is describing in Psalm 37. This is what he is unfolding for us in the psalm. So we must overcome what we see by our eyes, by our sight. We must overcome our experiences. We must overcome these things. And we cannot judge a man by his station in life. We cannot judge him by his abundance or by his lack of possessions. For our Lord Jesus Christ said, Be aware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Luke chapter 12, 15. Not even if you have an abundance, he says, does your life consist of your possessions. So let's pick up in Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. There it says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in him. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. There, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he, being the Lord, delights in his way. Right? This is in contrast to the wicked of this world, especially the wicked rich who put all of their trust in their riches, right? Is this not the case of what we see in this present life? People in this life believe that if they have riches, if they have wealth, they have security. They are established. Nothing will shake them. Nothing will move them. They can deal with whatever comes to them. They have no cares, no concerns in this life, and they think that their riches give them stability, Yet here we see that this is not the case at all. It is only the Lord who can give to a man stability. Only he can establish our steps and not our money. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. 
verse 28 says, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He who trusts in riches, who thinks riches gives him security and stability, what's going to happen to him? He's going to fall, right? He is going to fall to his own ruin and destruction. Because it is not riches that establish a man, but it is the Lord and the Lord alone. True ultimate security, being truly established, is not the result of an abundance of wealth and possessions, but rather it is when a person has the favor and blessing of God upon his life. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when God delights in that man, when God delights in him. This is when he is established. Not as the wicked who seem to have stability, but only temporarily, right? Only for a short period of time, only momentarily. So long as they have their riches, so long as they have their life, they seem to have security. But what do we know about riches? Can't riches be quickly lost even in this life? Can a person be rich one day and be poor the next? Right? An example would be Job. Job was the most wealthy man in the whole world. And yet what happened to him overnight, right? Overnight, he lost his riches and he was even a righteous man. He didn't lose them because of his sin, right? He wasn't putting his trust in them. And yet we know from his life that they were there one day and they were gone the next. So if you put your hope and trust in riches, then you have no sure foundation because riches, even in this life, can be quickly lost. But even if a person keeps their riches throughout all of their life, even if they're born into wealth from the cradle and they have wealth their whole life to the grave, what happens to them when they die? Their riches are gone. So what stability do they have in the life to come from their riches? And they have none. They're not established by that into the life to come because those things are quickly gone. They are quickly lost. Remember what he said in verse 20. Psalm 37, 20, the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Both riches and the possessor of riches are like smoke that will soon vanish away. Riches cannot deliver a man on the day of judgment. Only the Lord can do so. God alone can establish the steps of a man. And God does it for eternity, not temporarily, not just in this life, but for all eternity, God can do that. And God's favor is only on those in whom he delights. When God delights in a man, when he delights in our way, then God is the one who will establish us. So then we have to ask, who does God delight in? Does God delight in all men equally? Or does God only delight in some men, in some men? Well, notice Psalm 5. Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God takes no pleasure in wickedness, and not only in wicked actions, 
but the wicked men who commit those actions. God does not take any pleasure. He does not delight in those who commit sin, those who practice sin, those who speak falsehood, those who are men of blood and deceit. God does not take any pleasure in them. Also, notice Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This is because of sin. Because of sin. Isaiah 9 verse 17 says, Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all of this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. God takes no pleasure in their young men. He does not have any pity on their orphans or on their widows. Why? Because all of them are godless and evildoers, and every mouth speaks foolishness. God does not delight in godless, evildoing people, even if they're godless widows, even if they're evildoing orphans. God has no pleasure. He takes no delight in evildoers. They will not be established by the Lord. So then, who will be established? Who are the ones that God delights in? The righteous, the saints, the saints, the elect, the children of God, right? His holy ones. These are the ones that God delights in. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. This is a psalm that is speaking of Christ. Speaking of Christ. David is by the Spirit recording the words of Christ beforehand. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. There, Christ says, the saints of the earth, the saints, the holy ones, the righteous ones of God, they are the majestic ones on the earth and these are the ones that he delights in. The redeemed, right? The believers, the remnant, the children of God. These are the ones that God delights in. So who will be established? They will. God will establish them, but not the wicked, right? Not the wicked and not the evildoers. So neither the presence nor the absence of riches assure a man of God's favor. It is only the presence or absence of faith. That's the key, right? It is faith that is the key. As it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it is those who are of faith that are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And what kind of faith? Is it any faith? What about the faith of demons? Can we have the faith of demons and be blessed along with Abraham, the believer? No, we have to have true faith. Not superficial faith, not spurious faith, but true faith produced by the Holy Spirit of God within us that manifests itself by good fruit or by good works. As it says in James chapter 2, James chapter 2, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James chapter 2, verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? 
James chapter 2, verse 20. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Right? Dead faith doesn't cut it. True faith cuts it. Living faith. That's what we have to have. Those are the ones that God delights in. God establishes them with the result that he says in verse 24, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Even when the righteous fall, even when they experience hardships, sufferings, temptations, they may stumble, they may fall, but it will only be momentarily. It'll be a temporary fall. It will not be a fall to their own ruin and destruction. And why is that the case? Who is holding their hand? It is the Lord who holds their hand, and God will not let them fall to their eternal ruin and destruction. God is holding the hand of the righteous as he goes through his life. Just as a father holds the hand of the child as he's learning to walk, and when the child stumbles, he may scrape his knee, he may fall temporarily, but what will the father do? He'll pick him back up. So it is here with the Lord. This is what God does for his children. He holds their hand so that when they are assailed by hardships, by temptations, by trials and tribulations, they may be shaken, they may be rattled for a moment, but not ultimately. It will not lead to their ultimate ruin and destruction. They will not fall headlong because God is holding them and God will not let them be destroyed. They will not fall headlong. The wicked, when they fall, they fall headlong. And what happens when you fall headlong? Head first. You land on your head and you break your neck, right? You die. That's what he means there. You fall and it is a grievous fall that leads to ultimate destruction. That is what will happen to the wicked. They fall headlong, but not the righteous. And the reason is because God holds them. He holds them by the hand. So this is the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Both of them alike face trials and tribulations. Both of them alike are tempted to sin. The righteous may stumble and fall, but not headlong. His stumbling is only going to be temporary because God holds his hand, while the wicked will stumble and fall to their own ruin and destruction. A clear example of this contrast is Judas Iscariot and the Apostle Peter. Right? Both of them were tempted. Both of them, in a sense, denied Christ. Judas denied Christ, betrayed him, and fell and was hurled headlong by God to his ruin and destruction. Peter also fell. He also denied Christ, but not headlong, not to his destruction. He did so temporarily. He regained his stability later because God was holding his hand. Let's see this. Matthew 27. First, Judas. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the fraud. Matthew 27, verse 3. Matthew 27, 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. So notice there, one, Judas felt remorse. He had some kind of a sorrow. Is sorrow over sin necessarily righteous? In this case, no, because the sorrow didn't lead to repentance. This is worldly sorrow, and it led to him committing, uh, uh, killing himself. Right, So he had sorrow. He even acknowledged that he sinned, didn't he? He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He had sorrow and he acknowledged his sin, but did he truly repent? Did he have the forgiveness of sins? No, because he did not repent. He went and he killed himself. Also with this, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 Verse 16. 1.16 says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language the field was called uh, Hakodama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So there, here, when he, the psalmist is talking about them falling headlong, he's meaning it in a figurative sense, but in the case of Judas, he fell both headlong, figuratively speaking, spiritually speaking. Also, literally, he fell headlong and all of his intestines bust out, right? As an example of how detestable of a person he was. This was an example of the curse of God that was upon him because of his sin. So did Judas stumble and fall? Yes, he did. Did he fall headlong? Yes, he did to his own ruin and destruction. And is Judas now in the kingdom of God with Christ? No, he is not there, but rather he is in a place of torment, even there are, though there are some false interpreters who say that he is in heaven. That's not the case at all. Okay, then what about Peter? Luke 22, verse 31. Luke chapter 22 In verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have d- denied three times that you know me. So there, Jesus is predicting beforehand what's going to happen with Peter. Right? Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan is going to afflict you with temptations. And what's going to happen momentarily? He's going to fall, right? Because he tells him, you're going to have to turn again. 
right? That you have to turn again means you're going to turn away. And what do we know happened with Peter? Did he deny Christ three times? Yes, he denied him three times, and he went out and he wept bitterly. But what does Jesus predict here? Not only will you deny me three times, but also you will turn again, and when you do, you will strengthen your brothers. And that's what happened. So what made the difference between Peter and Judas? Why did one fall to his own ruin and destruction, but the other one fell, yet only temporarily? Well, according to our psalm, Peter was upheld by the mighty power of God. Though he stumbled, the Lord held his hand so that he did not fall headlong. While Judas, on the other hand, was not being held by God. He was a fraud the whole time. He was not one of his own. He was not held by the hand. And when he fell, he fell to his own ruin and destruction. As it says in Proverbs 24, 16, A righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in a time of calamity. The righteous man falls. He may fall seven times, but what will always happen with him? He will rise again because God will not let him fall ultimately. He will not let his children fall away. They may fall temporarily, but they will rise again because God upholds them. He upholds them by his strong right arm. Psalm 37, verse 25. 25 and 26. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Here, the prophet is committing to us his own observation, right? What he's seen throughout the course of his life. He has been young and now he is old. He has experienced life, and there is something that he has observed, something that he has seen proven over the course of his life, over and over again throughout the years of his life. And what is this truth, right? We have this truth declared to us that God watches over the righteous. And then here, this truth, which is declared by God in his word, is manifested or proven throughout the course of our life. Namely, that God cares for his people. That's why he says, I have been young and now I am old. And here, we're not talking about a foolish old person, right? If it was a foolish old person, then we wouldn't want to listen to them. But generally speaking, right, especially when you're dealing with a righteous man, isn't it those who are of age, who have experienced life, that they acquire wisdom as they go through life, right? This is generally true in the world, but especially for Christians, especially for the righteous, for a saint. And here, we're not even talking about a saint like you or me may be. This is a holy prophet of God, a prophet of God filled with the Spirit of God, and he is telling us what he has observed throughout the course of his life. And we need to listen to him. And what is it that he has seen? Or rather, what has he not seen? He says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken by God. I have never seen his descendants begging for bread. This is his experience. He knows this to be true. He's seen it in his own life, and he's seen it in the lives of others. In all of his days, he's never seen a righteous man forsaken by God. It's never happened one time, and it never will happen. Because if God forsook a righteous man, then God would be a liar. Because his word says he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. 
So if that ever happened, then God would be a liar. But God cannot lie. He is not a liar. The devil's a liar, but not God. God always speaks and says what is true. So he has never seen a righteous man forsaken. He's never seen his descendants begging for bread. Because God is caring for them. God is providing for them. Now notice there, begging for bread. He doesn't say, I've never seen his descendants not become millionaires and billionaires. We're not talking about that. We're talking about bread, the basic necessities of life. What he has seen is the righteous. God provides for them. He provides for them. He gives them their daily bread. This is what God gives to his people. Now, this is a general truth, not a universal truth, for there are some from time to time who have been afflicted with hunger so that they have to beg for food. An example is Lazarus, Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, this was the case with Lazarus. He was reduced to a beggarly state, though he was a righteous man. Luke 16, 19 says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So there, Lazarus is in a very miserable state. Right, to the point that he's laid at the gate of the rich man, covered with sores, and he's longing to even be fed from the crumbs that fall from his table. So he has been reduced to this state of poverty where he is so impoverished that he desires just the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table, that he would just give those things to him. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 The apostle, 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 27. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So there, the experience of the Apostle Paul was that there were times throughout his life and throughout his ministry when he did experience hunger and thirst and he was without food, right? That he did not have food. So you do have these exceptions, but these are exceptions to the rule. These are rare examples. Lazarus and the Apostle Paul, both righteous men, both faced hunger, yet even in their hungry state, they were not forsaken by God. God did not abandon them. And also, these two are exceptions to the rule. Right? Generally speaking, the righteous are not afflicted with such severity as to face hunger that requires begging. For the most part, God grants to his children earthly blessings. These are signs or tokens of God's love and God's favor for them. And I doubt that any of us here in the time of our salvation, have ever had to beg for food. But we've always seen God provide all of our needs, all of our daily needs, and to the extent that we even have an abundance. We even have more than what we need. That's what he's talking about here. This is generally true. This is what we see throughout the course of our life. 
And isn't it true that if a man is a godly man, he's likely, right, not likely, he is going to be a very hard worker. He's going to excel in the workplace. He's going to be trustworthy. He's going to be industrious. He's going to gain the favor of his superiors because of his good character and because of his hard work ethic. And what generally happens when you're like that? Don't you advance in the workplace? Aren't there many employers out there who want to hire people like that? So they're able to get jobs. And isn't it true that a righteous man as well is a wise steward of his money? He's not out squandering his money on riotous living. He's not living beyond his means. He's not acquiring all this debt, but he's living a frugal, content life. And when a person works hard, is industrious, and is wise with his money, what generally happens with him? Isn't it often the case that they are able to build wealth? They have an abundance of more than what they need, above and beyond what they even need for their daily needs. He's able to build wealth and provide abundantly for his descendants, both while he is alive and then even leave them an inheritance after he dies. And this is why his children are never begging for bread, because he is hardworking and he is wise with his money and there's no need for it because of these things. He's even able to leave an inheritance, as it says in Proverbs 13, 22, that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Not just to his children, but even to his children's children, even to his grandchildren. This is what he means here when he says he has never been forsaken in this life and he's never seen his children begging for bread. This is what he has seen. So yes, it is true, the righteous will face adversity. They will have their share of afflictions, but even in their afflicted state, God does not abandon them. God never forsakes his children. And even in our affliction, we still have many tokens of God's love and God's favor upon our life. To the extent that he says all day long, he is gracious and he lends and his descendants are a blessing. God blesses the righteous so much that he is gracious and he's able to lend to others all day long he's doing this. He uses the blessing that God has given to him, not merely for his own pleasures, not even for his own family, but also to even be a blessing to outsiders. Whenever he sees legitimate needs arise, he's happy to help. He's gracious and he lends. Now we might say, oh, but he's lending out his money. All right, he's doing it to, for profit. He's doing it in this way. He's taking advantage of the desperation of another in order to make money off of this. But how does the righteous man lend to his neighbor? Does he lend with interest and usury? Or does he lend with no expectation of interest? He lends without exacting interest from his brother. And he even lends without expectation of being repaid. This is what he means here when it says all day long he is gracious and lends. He's lending without getting any interest. So if he lends the man $1,000 and the man is able one day to pay him back, he only pays him back $1,000. So he's not making any money. Actually, in the Joe Biden economy, he's losing money because inflation is so high. When he gets the 1000 back, it's probably going to be only worth $500. So he's not doing it for profit. And even if the man is never able to pay him back, that's okay, because he's not doing it for the sake of money. 
He's doing it for love of neighbor. He's doing it because he's a gracious man, and he knows that if he was put in a desperate situation, wouldn't he want his neighbor to help him? He would want his neighbor to love him and to do good to him just as he will do good to him. Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Psalm 15, verse 1 says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. There, the righteous man. He does not put out his money at interest. Right? Now, again, he's not talking about banks. He's not talking about business dealings and these types of things. He's talking about person-to-person, interpersonal relationships. Right? Whenever someone within the church, whenever a brother is on hard times and he needs help, He is willing to help him without exacting anything from him, without any benefit monetarily or financially to himself. He's doing it to help his neighbor because he loves his neighbor. So if the neighbor has a turn of bad events and comes into a situation of poverty and the neighbor doesn't have what he needs to plant his fields or do whatever it is that he needs to do, then he will be happy to help his neighbor And if one day the neighbor is restored and is able to repay him, then he should repay him. But if not, he's not worried about it. He's not fretting over it because he's lending to him without the expectation of interest and without the expectation of being repaid because he's doing it for fear of Lord and for love of neighbor. This because he is gracious. He is gracious and he gives freely. Now, how does a person become like this? Is this natural or is this supernatural? It's supernatural. This takes the work of God. This takes the spirit of God. Only God can make us like this. Only God can make a man behave in this way. Also, he says, his descendants are a blessing. His children, his grandchildren, are not a blight on society. They're not deviants. They're not meddlers. They're not drains on the system, but rather they are a blessing, right? They're a benefit to many people because the children will be like the father. The children will be like the mother. If the father, if the mother are righteous, they're a blessing on the earth, then the descendants of those people will also be a blessing on the earth as well. Now, again, this is not a universal truth. This is a general truth. Of course, there are some descendants who come from righteous fathers and mothers who are not a blessing on the earth, right? Who are deviants and who are a blight on society. Abel and Seth were blessings, but not Cain. Shem and Japheth were blessings, but not Ham. Isaac was a blessing, but not Ishmael. Jacob was a blessing, but not Esau, right? But many times, the faith that resides in the father or the faith that resides in the mother 
will be passed down to the children and even to the grandchildren so that the descendants that come from the righteous man will be a blessing upon the earth. That's what he means here. His children are a blessing. An example would be 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is the case with Timothy. Wasn't Timothy a blessing on the earth? Of course he was. And where did this blessing arise from, right? In terms of human transmission. Ultimately, we know it ultimately comes from God. But in terms of the means of making Timothy a blessing, where did it come from? Where did it originate with? 2 Timothy 1.5 For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is now in you as well. It started with the grandmother, and then it passed down to the mother, and then it passed down to the son. Isn't that what he means in Psalm 37? His descendants are a blessing. The descendants of Lois are a blessing. A blessing, because Eunice was a blessing, and then Timothy was a blessing. Right? This is the way God works, and this is what the psalmist means in Psalm 37. Okay, Psalm 37, verse 27. Depart from evil and do good. So you shall abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. There, he says, depart from evil and do good. Now, this is the life of faith, right? The righteous shall live by his faith. Faith without works is dead, right? If we have been born of God then that new birth will be manifested by departing from evil and doing good. Here, the emphasis is on the fruit of faith, right? The result of faith. He could say, right, the faithful are the ones who will inherit the land. And he said that in many times and in many different ways. But here he's emphasizing the fruit of faith, departing from evil and doing good, right? Since there is such a blessing for the children of God, Right, since there is a future for the man of peace, right, since we know that evildoers will be cut off, but the righteous will be inherit the land, then what should be the obvious conclusion? How should we live in this present age? Depart from evil and do good. This is what we need to be doing. This should be our daily goal in life. To reject what is sinful, what is evil, what comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Reject all of these things and instead live an upright, godly life in this present age. Walk according to the Spirit and you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And how do you summarize what it means to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Depart from evil and do good. Right? It's all the same thing. It's just they're saying the same thing over and over again in many different kinds of ways. And a very simple explanation of the Christian life is depart from evil and do good. This is what we need to be doing every day. Can't we remember that? Is that too hard for us to remember? Is that so complicated of a sentence that we can't remember it or know what we need to do? No, that's very simple, isn't it? It's a very simple thing to, to know and understand. Depart from evil and do good. Third John. Third John chapter 1. 
3 John chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. There, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Isn't that the same as our psalm? Depart from evil and do good. Don't imitate evil, but instead imitate what is good. Why? Because the one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Is this an issue of salvation? Is it an issue of life and death? Yes. Right now, again, it's not that doing good causes us to be born of God, but we are born of God first, and the fruit or the manifestation that we have been born of God is that we do good. And then the person who has not been born of God, who has not seen God, what is the manifestation for him? He does evil. He imitates what is evil. So this is what he means here, right? Departing from evil and doing good. This is not the basis of our salvation. It is the fruit of salvation. It is the manifestation of salvation. And it's very important for us to talk about this. And when we do, we're not legalists. This isn't legalism. This is Christianity. This is what the Bible teaches. The reason the Bible speaks so much about these issues is because everyone claims to be a Christian, right? Many, many people claim to be children of God, right? To be believers, to have eternal life, especially in Oklahoma. We live in the Bible Belt. You can't find a person hardly who doesn't say that they're a Christian, who isn't going to heaven, who hasn't got everything worked out between them and the man upstairs. These are the kinds of things that they say. That everything's good between me and God. I've got nothing to worry about. I know that when I die, there's absolute certainty that when I die, I'm going to heaven. All the blessings are assumed. All of them are claimed, right? All of the things that are in the psalm, Psalm 37, that are for the righteous, many people claim these things. Many people say that they are theirs. But what is the evidence, right? What is the evidence? Many claim this presumptuously, without any basis, but only those who are departing from evil and doing good. Only those who are manifesting their true faith, manifesting that they have been born of God by their godly living, only they will abide forever. He's making a distinction between a true Christian and a fake Christian, right? Because the fake Christian doesn't depart from evil. He doesn't pursue what is good. But a true Christian, this is the way that he will live his life. So departing from evil and doing good does not earn us eternal life, but it is the proof that we possess eternal life as a gift from God. And this is what makes a clear distinction between the true and the fake, between the children of God and between the children of the devil. 1 John chapter 3. And again, we have to talk about these things because the heart is desperately sick. And all men are liars. People want to believe what is false. They don't want to believe what's true. And they're happy to accumulate for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them, all you have to do is say a prayer and join the church and get baptized and you can reserve and guarantee your spot in heaven and then you can do whatever you want the rest of your life. This is what people are doing. This is what false pastors and false churches are doing and then they're giving people false assurance. 
We want people to have assurance as well, but not based on lies. And what is the assurance of salvation? How do you know that you're a child of God? You depart from evil and you do good. Not perfectly, of course, no one can do that perfectly. But this is what we should be pursuing every single day of our life until when? Until the day we die. This is the way that we are supposed to live. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Notice that. Obvious. And we're talking about what? Children of God versus children of the devil. We're not talking about super Christians versus just your average Christian. We're not talking about, okay, we're all in the same family, we're all true believers, but some are better than others. Children of God versus who? Children of the devil. And who's he talking to? Christians, those who claim to be Christians, helping them understand why people are leaving the church, why people who make a profession of faith in Christ don't continue with Christ. Why is this happening? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. How do we know whether someone is a child of God or a child of the devil? If they don't practice righteousness, they're not of God. If they don't love their brother, they are not of God. And if they're not of God, then who are they of? They're of the devil, right? That's what he's saying here. This, and it's obvious, he says, obvious. We must practice righteousness. And what is it to practice righteousness but to depart from evil and to do good? Also with this, don't we have to understand the difference between good and evil? Don't we need to know what is evil and what is good? And where are we going to learn that from? The Bible, but specifically, which passage of the Bible? Exodus chapter 20, the 10 holy commandments of God. This is the other thing that you'll find in these churches that give superficial faith to people. They never preach the righteousness of God. They'll never preach the Ten Commandments of God because they don't want to be legalist. But that's not legalism, right? Everything is backwards with these, with these people. They're all upside down. They need to be right side up. Okay, another passage, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day. Notice that. Many will say to me on that day. And here, are we talking about Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus? No. These are people saying to Christ, Lord, Lord. People who in this life called Jesus their Lord. They call him their Lord. Well, if Jesus is your Lord, then how is that going to be manifested in your life? How can he be your Lord if you don't obey him, if you don't do what he says? Many will say to me on that day, and what day are we talking about here? Day of judgment, yes. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Right? Lawlessness. That's the evidence that they were never true believers. They were saying Jesus was their Lord, but can Jesus be your Lord while you're practicing lawlessness? You're not obeying the law of your king, of your Lord. You're a lawless person. 
Yet you're saying Jesus is your king. You're saying he is your Lord, but you're not obeying him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. So it is very easy for a person to pronounce their standing before God. It is very easy to boast and to have big words, to claim this or that. But the true possession of salvation is not based on the empty words of man, the lying words of man. True salvation is seen in the life of a man, in the way that he lives, in his good fruit, departing from evil and doing good. Now notice next, why is this? Four, the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. This is why the godly ones, who are the children of God, depart from evil and do good. The Lord, their Lord, he loves justice. If we are born of God, then we will be like our God. We will be like our Father. Our Heavenly Father loves justice. He hates sin. He loves righteousness. So what will be true of us? We will hate sin, and we will also love righteousness. Even when we sin, we hate sin. That's what it says at the end of Romans chapter 7. I do the very thing that I hate, he says. He hates it, but he still does it, but he doesn't like it. He wants to overcome it. But that's not the way it is with a wicked person. They love their sin, and they want to drink it like water. But the righteous hate sin and love righteousness because God loves justice. Right? Isn't that what justice is? A proper understanding of good and evil? Right? A proper understanding of what good is and what evil is and what the punishment is deserved for evil and what the reward is for good. God makes a distinction between good and evil, between good men and between evil men, between good deeds and between evil deeds. God rewards the good man who out of his good heart brings forth good, while God punishes the evil man who out of his evil heart brings forth evil. Now again, when we say that, of course, the only way a good man can have a good heart and bring forth good is by the miracle of God, by the new birth of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. But when a person is converted, isn't that a true description of who they are? They are a good man, they do have a good heart, and that good heart does produce good because the Holy Spirit lives within them. This is what is true of them. And God will reward them for that good. Again, not that they produce through their own strength, but the good produced by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the justice of God. He loves justice. He will perfectly punish Every evildoer, every sinful deed will be brought to light and God will punish all workers of iniquity and then God will reward the righteous. Knowing this, knowing that God loves righteousness, knowing that he loves justice, then we will want to practice justice in our life. And how do we practice justice? Depart from evil and do good. The wicked don't believe this. They don't believe in the God of justice. They don't believe that God loves justice. They believe God loves them, right? They believe in the God of false love. They believe in the God of false grace who will not harm a fly. God won't punish anyone 
So for them, it doesn't matter if they depart from evil and do good because we're all going to make it to heaven anyway, right? What does it matter? We can't have this attitude. We have to have the fear of the Lord. And we must remember that the Lord, the Lord God, the true God of the Bible, he loves justice. He loves righteousness. And God has in his heart a day of justice, a day of justice when he will punish all workers of iniquity. Even our Lord Jesus Christ said, I have come to cast fire on the earth and would that it was already kindled, he said. He is coming to cast the fires of judgment upon the earth. And he loves it. He loves it and he desires it. Genesis 18. Genesis 18. This is what he means by justice. Not social justice as is taught today by the communist, which is nothing but social injustice, but true justice. True justice is a proper understanding of good and evil and the proper punishments deserved for evil. Genesis 18, verse 16 says, Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. This is the Lord and the two angels that were with him. Three men appeared to Abraham, or the appearance of three men. One of the men was the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, before his incarnation, and the other two men were holy angels of God. Okay, and these are the ones that came, met with Abraham, gave the blessing to Abraham, and now they're going down to see Sodom. And Abraham was with them. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Here, God has chosen Abraham so that he might command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And the reason God chooses not to hide from Abraham what he's about to do. And what is he about to do? He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and sulfur from heaven. And the fire that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the apostle Jude, is an example of un the undergoing of the eternal fires of hell, right? It is an example of the eternal punishment of hell. And God says, I'm not going to hide this from Abraham because he needs to understand justice and righteousness so that he can teach his children. And here he's going to have an example of the justice and of the righteousness of God seen in the killing, the execution of the wicked. And here, Specifically, what is their sin that's brought forward? Their sodomy, right? Their sodomy, their homosexuality. So the justice of God is seen in the execution of the wicked, even in the execution of homosexuals. They shouldn't be parading around today, and they should not be set forward as the pillar of society, because they're not in the sight of God. There, again... If Abraham is going to teach his children, he needs to understand justice and righteousness, which is the punishment of the ungodly. We need to understand this as well so that we can teach our children 
to depart from evil and do good. When we believe in the day of justice, then we will do this. We will leave evil and do what is good and right. And when we're living that way, we have an assurance that we will abide forever. Then we can have confidence that God will not forsake us, but will preserve us forever. If we depart from evil, then on the day of justice, Jesus will not say, depart from me. But if we do not depart from evil, then on the day of justice, Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or as our prophet says here, the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will be preserved forever, but the wicked, they're going to be cut off forever. The wicked man and his descendants, right? Just as it was with the righteous, so it is with the wicked. The righteous man produces descendants that are a blessing, The wicked man will produce descendants that are a curse and a blight, and they will be cut off with him. Now, again, this is not universally true. There are some children who have wicked parents and who depart from the sins of their parents and live a godly and righteous life. They won't be cut off from God. But generally speaking, if the father is wicked, what is typically true of the son? He's going to be wicked as well. If the mother is wicked, what's going to be true of the daughters? They're going to be wicked as well. That their children will follow in their footsteps. So the wicked man will be cut off, and then his children are going to be cut off as well because they followed him in his wickedness, all because of sin, all because of their sin. And then verse 29. The righteous, they will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. It is only the righteous who will inherit the land, and only they will dwell in it forever, forever. Now, again, what land is he talking about here? He cannot be talking about the land of Canaan. He cannot be talking about the land of Israel over in the Middle East, because how could he dwell in it forever when he died? And he knows that he is a man, and he knows that he's going to die. This is the heavenly Canaan. The heavenly Israel, the eternal Israel of God, the new heavens and new earth. This is what he's longing for, and this is the inheritance that God will give to all of his people. They will dwell forever with God in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And this promise is for us, and this promise is for our children. If what? If we have true faith... And if that true faith is manifested by departing from evil and doing good. This is why we have to test ourselves. We have to examine our life to see if we are in the faith. To see whether or not we have true faith, like Peter, or if we have false faith, like Judas. I hope that we will pass the test. That we will not be careless. That we will not have a presumptuous attitude and say, it doesn't matter, we're all going to make it. No, we have to take these things seriously. And we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. And that's not only for our benefit, but according to our passage here, who else is it going to be a benefit to? Our children and our grandchildren. We don't want our children going to hell, do we? We don't want our grandchildren going to hell. We want them to go to heaven. Well, then we better make sure that we're going to heaven as well and make sure that we are true believers and that we are manifesting our good faith by departing from evil and doing good. So then let us pursue that as our goal and as our aim in life and know that God will uphold us 
and he will never forsake or abandon his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and Lord, how it so clearly teaches us, Lord, everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we know that it is not the riches of a man, Lord, it is not his physical strength or anything in this world that causes him to be established. But, Lord, you and you alone are the only one who can establish the steps of a man. And, Lord, you do this only for those that you delight in. Lord, only for those who are your children. Lord, we thank you that though a righteous man may fall, and, Lord, though he may fall seven times, he will always rise up again. Lord, not because of his own strength or ingenuity or his own wisdom, but you are the one who holds his hand. And, Lord, you will not let him fall headlong to his own destruction. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you will never abandon or forsake the righteous. And that, Lord, we have so many examples, so many tokens daily of your love, of your grace, of your kindness toward us. Lord, which of us would ever say that our children have had to beg for bread? Lord, you are providing for us so abundantly. Lord, with such a variety of abundance, Lord, that Lord, we should never doubt your love for us. Lord, that you have forsaken or that you have abandoned us. Lord, we pray that our children, Lord, that they would be a blessing upon the earth. Lord, we pray first that we would be a blessing and then our children and our grandchildren, Lord, that they would be a blessing on the earth as well. Lord, just as you did with Timothy, Lord, the faith that was found in his grandmother and then in his mother was also found in him. Lord, we pray that this would be true in our homes as well, that the faith of the parents would be passed down to the children and to the grandchildren, Lord, for many, many generations, and that as a result of your kindness to us, Lord, that your blessing upon us, Lord, our children would be a blessing on this earth, Lord, a blessing to your people, Lord, a blessing to you for many, many years, Lord, for many generations, Lord, even after our death, that this would continue to be the case. Lord, help us to see that we must depart from evil, and Lord, we must do good. Lord, it is only those who live a righteous life. Lord, only those who prove themselves to be your children, Lord, who can lay claim to the many promises and the many blessings, Lord, that are found in your word, Lord, that await for the children of God. Lord, keep us from lying to ourselves. Lord, keep us from Lord, buying into the deceit that we see so often in the churches today. Lord, where people claim to be your children. And Lord, they claim all the blessings of salvation. Lord, while they have no fruit, there's nothing that evidences or ever manifest that they truly are your children. Lord, we pray that we would depart from all evil. And that, Lord, we would desire to do good, Lord, all the days of our life. Lord, so that we might abide forever. And that, Lord, we might abide with you, Lord, the God of justice, Lord, the God of righteousness. Lord, make us like you, just as you are holy. So, Lord, may we be holy in all that we do. Lord, we know that the wicked will be cut off, and we know that it is only the righteous who will inherit the land, Lord, who will dwell with you forever. And, Father, we pray that you would give us a claim to that inheritance and that you would keep it and store it for us in heaven until the day that we see you face to face. So, Lord, we ask for your blessing and your favor to be upon us, Lord, to be upon our families, to be upon our children, 
Lord, to be upon this church. Lord, we pray that you would keep us, that you would watch us as the apple of your eye. Lord, that you would establish our steps. Lord, that you would never forsake us. And that, Lord, you would sanctify us more and more throughout the course of our life. So that daily we see that we are growing. And Lord, that daily it could be said of us that we are more and more departing from evil and more and more we are pursuing and doing that which is good. So Lord, keep us and preserve us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.